Evidence and Answers. How do you communicate effectively with those who are not open to the message of Christ? How do we equip Christians to effectively engage those who are hostile to the message of Christ? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Dr. Oz Guinness was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat Zucran. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. As a reminder, if you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Dr. Oz Guinness with part one of his message entitled, Fool's Talk. Several of you have asked me about my strange names. I won't go into the first one. When I'm in America, I always know which part of the country I'm in, whether I'm, they're interested in the Guinness Book of Records because they don't drink, or whether in most parts of the country they're interested in the brewery because they do. But of course, our family is actually behind both of them, the Book of Records and the drink. My ancestor, when he founded the Guinness Brewery, it was a statement of Christian moderation over against the social craze and serious problem of gin drunkenness. And in those days, many of the evangelical breweries were such a statement. And my ancestor was a strong Christian who came to Christ through John Wesley's preaching in the Irish Revival. But of course, you can get sort of funny associations that I sometimes tell the story. Our family was incredibly generous, but they always gave their money anonymously. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And one time, the city fathers in Dublin came to them and said, would they contribute to the rebuilding of St. Patrick's Cathedral? It's the largest church in Ireland, and it was annually flooded through the river, and it was falling down. And they agreed, so long as there was no mention of the family at all. But they did such a wonderful job, the city fathers came back and said, would they mind if there was a discreet mention of gratitude? If it was really discreet. Well, when the curtain went back on the stained glass window, the city fathers, who obviously hadn't been trained in this church or any good church, the city fathers put thanks to the family and all that. Then they put a Bible verse at the bottom. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. <laughs> that is my family. Now let's pick up this topic of persuasion. Persuasion. If we had a lot more time, it would be fun to look at the roots of apologetics. For myself, I think we've got to root it in the Scriptures. A huge number of people shape their apologetics in response to, say, the sparring partners of today, like the New Atheists, or maybe the philosophical discussions of the 12th century, like the theistic proofs for God, or whatever. And I think most of the stuff that comes out of that is incredibly unconvincing. But a lot of people go back to the Scriptures and they start and stop with 1 Peter 3.15, which of course is very, very important. And many people don't go back to the Gospels or to the Old Testament. But I think apologetics goes all the way back to the fall. And at its heart, we are defending the honor of our Lord. And you see in Romans when Paul says that on the day of judgment, all mouths will be stopped, what he actually says in the Greek is everyone will be left without an apologist. There will be no defense for anyone 
who doesn't bow to the Lord. They will be apologist-less. But from the fall till that day, this is the reverse of the American legal saying, the defense rests. We say, by contrast, the defense never rests. And while there's one last person resisting or disbelieving the Lord, we've got a job to do. So apologetics is at the heart of our following Jesus. As I see it, evangelism is a straightforward sharing of the good news. Because someone's open, it's good news to them. Apologetics is pre-evangelism. For people who don't think it's good news, there's got to be what the Australians call bush clearing. We've got to clear all the ground of the objections and the prejudices and the suspicions, wherever they come from, so that they see the gospel is the good news, the best news ever. But if you think of it like that, there are obviously a lot of people in our culture, and maybe more than ever, who simply are not open. Not open, not interested, not needy, and they are in many ways the very hardest people to try and reach. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. But let me start a long way from Jesus or the Gospels or apologetics. I love the story of a famous time when Norman Mailer, self-professed male chauvinist pig, was invited by the University of Cal Berkeley to speak there. He outraged the feminists. And the thought the university administration had invited him angered them. And a huge number of the radical feminists came to take him on. And he was warned. Mailer was absolutely unfazed. He strode through the crowd, people hissing, jeering, got up to the microphone, looked out, huge brigade of angry feminists. And he said simply, I'm going to say something serious, so all you feminists, boo now. <laughs> and they obliged. They hissed and jeered and booed and barracked, and men were making wolf whistles. It was pandemonium for about six or seven minutes. But you can't keep at it forever, and inevitably it died down. Mailer just stood there quietly. He stepped back to the podium and said, didn't I tell you, you obedient little women. <laughs> and from then onwards, they listened in a kind of stunned silence. <laughs> He'd made his point and caught them out, and they'd been forced to see his point despite themselves. Now, Mailer was no follower of Jesus. He was a male chauvinist pig. And our Lord, as we know from the Gospels like Luke, has a wonderful record only the extremely prejudiced ever say anything negative about Jesus and his treatment of women. Why did I tell the story? The substance of what Mela did is light years from Jesus. The style in which he did it is actually closer to Jesus than many of us who are followers of Jesus. He built up an expectation in one way and suddenly threw the punchline an effect which went completely the opposite way reversed the original idea, revealed a new idea, and shook them to think about themselves. That's exactly what the parables in the Gospels do. Now take a biblical example. Take the story of Micaiah. You remember Jehoshaphat, Ahab, going out to battle. The good king, essentially, and the bad king. And they're in Ahab's capital, Samaria, so they bring on the court prophets in Samaria, and to a man, the court prophets all say, attack and win. And they're good modern communicators, and one of them produces horns, a visual aid to show they're going to gore the enemy. Jehoshaphat, the Lord's king, he's not quite convinced. And he says to Ahab, 
Do you have anyone else? And Ahab says, yes, I've got one other, and he's always negative about me. But they go off to get Micaiah, the Lord's prophet. And the royal servant says to him, everyone's prophesied victory. Mind you say the same thing too. And Micaiah says, whatever the Lord says to me, I will say. But then he comes back, and he says exactly what all the false prophets have said. So much so that halfway through it, not Joshua at this time, but Ahab, bursts out, I order you to tell the truth. Micaiah says, Your Majesty, you'll die. Ahab just walked onto that right uppercut, the way those feminists walked onto Norman Mailers. I call that subversion through surprise or creative persuasion. Micaiah got Ahab to see something that he was predisposed not to see. And the Bible is full of communication like that when people are closed. Now, let me open this relatively simply tonight, not make too many points. First, think of a problem we face. Most Christians, certainly most evangelicals, are wonderful communicators when people are open, interested, and needy. We share the gospel, and people come to Christ by the droves, whether it's Billy Graham or one-to-one. When people are open, interested, and needy, evangelicals are fine. But the trouble is, most people today are not open, not interested, and not needy. And then, very often, we're stuck. Now, you can see the terrific changes over 50 years. But Eisenhower era, which is often called the era of the Protestant Catholic Jew, but it's the last era in which a Jewish and Christian consensus was broadly understood. And so, put simply, people who weren't Christians themselves, relatively few of them, they could understand the Christian faith. They could understand Christian, as it were. So we could all talk in that way. The consensus was strong. The consensus was wide. The consensus was useful. But what's happened over the last 50 years? The public square has grown much more secular and highly controversial. And anything about religion now is immediately an argument. And private life has gone infinitely more diverse. Social scientists say everyone is now everywhere. The explosion of pluralization, as it's called, has given us a world in which everyone is now everywhere, and there's no precedent in history. Maybe an earlier time that was somewhat like it was the early church of the Roman Empire, which had incredible diversity, and the early church, without any compromise, witnessed powerfully, courageously in that atmosphere. But the sudden shift from a consensus that was Christian to this very diverse society of today, where Religion is controversial in the public. Many Christians are stuck when it comes to things when people are not open, not interested, not needy. Now you can see with many, they just keep on with the old formula. Recipe, one, two, three, four. As I said this morning, Jesus never talked to two people the same way. So I beg you, can throw away every formula you have. You've got to talk to each person as an individual. But the other problem we have is that many people talk as if everyone could still understand us or as if everyone shared our authority and so on. So the problems have gone from personal evangelism to the public square and politics. You hear people saying about same-sex marriage, the Bible says, the Bible says, in groups where the people are not Christians. And it means nothing. Now we look in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul When he's in the synagogue, he preaches in the Torah. 
And he tells the story of the Jews, and the only people who are not Jews are the God-fearers in the synagogue. But when he's on Mars Hill, the Greek philosophers, the Cretan poets, he starts where they are, and he's quite different. In other words, he shifts gears. He's flexible. And our Lord was infinitely flexible with each different person he saw, as Nicodemus or the woman of the well or whatever. So we need to have today a personal and a flexible and a persuasive approach that's able to talk to anyone we meet anywhere. Now, we haven't time to go into the biblical foundations of that. There are many, many passages we could look at. Francis Schaeffer, whom I learned so much from, he would major on Romans 1.18, where Paul says that everyone, unbelievers, hold the truth in unrighteousness. You could say they suppress the truth. They hold truth hostage. So just as a hijacker can put a pistol to the head of a pilot and make the plane fly to where it was not intended. So everyone's made in the image of God. Atheist, animist, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, they're all made in the image of God. But they hold the truth and unrighteousness and through their particular worldviews, hold the pistol to the head of truth, as it were, fly it in their own directions. But that always means there's still truth there. They're still made in the image of God. They're still living in God's world although they're taking it in a completely different direction. So we have a point of contact with anyone. There's no one we can't speak to who's not made in the image of God, although they don't know it. We can assume it because the Bible tells us it's so. But you can see today the church has a simple but profound problem, a crisis of persuasion. As I said, when people are open, interested, needy, we're fine. Thank God. But more and more people aren't. And then many Christians are stuck. How do we persuade? Well, let me go back. And finally, we've got to go back to Scripture. That's most important. But back to a precedent in history where you see the hint of a different way. Before the Reformation, and the man I'm going to mention is not one of my heroes in terms of the Reformation, but before the Reformation, the church was incredibly corrupt. And Erasmus who was a clergyman, wanted to issue a call for reformation. But how did he do it? Because he was aware that he faced two simple but massive problems. And what's interesting is the problems he faced are rather like ours today. In fact, our generation's as close to his generation as any in between at this point. The first problem was that the world had suddenly gone highly relativistic. Not much earlier, everyone spoke Christian. It was Christendom. But Christendom fractured. North against the South, the old ways of learning against the new ways of learning. Soon it was Protestants against Catholics. It was chaos. If you've ever seen Shakespeare's King Lear, one of the lines is, truth and goodness to the vile seem vile. Do you get that? Truth and goodness to the vile seem vile. In other words, it's all upside down, topsy-turvy, back to front, inside out. Isn't that our world? Everything depends on how you see it, where you come from. Is it your class, your race, your gender, whatever it is. It's a highly relativistic world, and that relativism fractures almost everything we say. And that was Erasmus's problem. The world has suddenly gone topsy-turvy with its crazy relativism. But that was only half the problem. The other half of the problem was the church was worldly. You didn't have a contrast between the wonderful gospel and this beautiful church and this crazy world. 
The church was as worldly. I mentioned Alexander VI last night. Incest, bribery, corruption. Erasmus had been at Bologna when Pope Julius came back from the Battle of Bologna, a pope leading the battle in full golden armor. And in great anger, Erasmus turned to the man next to him and said, Is he the disciple of Jesus Christ or of Julius Caesar? There was a vile corruption in the church of the time. So how would people know what the gospel was? So from the pope to the parish priest shacking up with people, the gospel was in disrepute. I came over here in the 80s. I was at the Brookings Institution in Washington the very time when television evangelists were either raking in money in bad ways or hopping in and out of bed in bad ways. And the name evangelical and tele-evangelist stank among secular people. I get phone calls and letters, I had three last week, of people are saying, you still evangelical when you see what evangelicalism become? And you can see in many places today, people see the distortions, the incredible distortions, and that's what they think Jesus is, the gospel is, we all are. But of course it isn't. Now that was Erasmus's problem. The world was relativistic, the church was worldly. What does he do? He went back to the biblical understanding of fool-making. Now, what does that? Have you ever done a Bible study of fools in the Bible? There are three types of fools. first one doesn't help us. The second one takes us a little way down the track. The third one is the one I'm after. The first fool in Scripture is what you might call the fool proper, the real fool. Now, if you think, in a fallen world, there is a good deal of relativism. Whenever you hear something, you should say, says who? Because folly and villainy and heroism are relative. Depends on the family or the country or whatever. But in Scripture, there are some people who are fools because God says so. And we know Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Psalms and Proverbs, particularly Proverbs, are filled with people who lack the fear of the Lord and who end up in stupidity, economic, sexual, or whatever, because they lack the fear of the Lord. They are fools proper. Now, it doesn't help us at all. And by God's grace, we should always avoid being that. The second fool in Scripture, much more interesting, the fool bearer. The person who's not a fool at all but prepared to be seen as one and treated as one for Christ's sake. Now, immediately you can think of where that comes from. Where? 1 Corinthians 4. But what's Paul saying when he says about the apostles, we are fools for Christ? He's not acknowledging they were really fools. He's saying the Corinthians, in their vaunted wisdom, saw the apostles as idiots And the apostles were prepared to be seen and treated as fools because they weren't. And they were doing it for Christ's sake. They were fool bearers. They bore the folly of Christ. Now, the idea goes much earlier than that. David danced with joy before the Lord, and his own wife thinks he's an idiot. For Jeremiah, it's a matter of incredible pain that he's become a laughingstock to his people. But who's the supreme fool bearer in Scripture? Our Lord. And before our Lord bears the sin of the world, he bears, twice he does, he bears the derision and folly of the world before the Jewish soldiers and before the Roman soldiers. 
and he's made a joke king, a mock king, with a crown of thorns and the scepter and so on, and he bears it. Now, that notion was a very precious notion for the early church. And in countries like my own, Ireland, where they had a tradition of holy fools, people who were prepared to be so faithful they didn't mind being dismissed as idiots. Now, that's important to us today because many Christians now try and play the victim card. The victim card is a disaster. Those who portray themselves as victims come to perceive themselves as victims and eventually to paralyze themselves as victims. Never play the victim card. Carry the cross of Christ and develop broad shoulders. Our Lord told us to expect it. And never play the phobia card. I get really angry at that book and the leader in Southern California who tells us that just as Muslims can describe us as Islamic foes and, phobes and gays as, uh, as uh, homophobes, so we should play the card of phobia and call people Christophobes. What terrible thing. Our Lord told us to expect the derision and the persecution of the world. Count yourselves filled with joy when you face that. None of this victim play. Now, that doesn't help us in our communication. Except, as the early church understood it, there's a hint of the way forward. John Chrysostom, the great golden come preacher in Constantinople, he says in one of his sermons, the Christian fool, remember, not the person who is a fool, but the person prepared to be seen and treated as one, the Christian fool is he who gets slapped down and none the worse for the slapping. Why? Between the immediate which may be horrific, and the ultimate, which is always hopeful, there's such a tension that we're never knocked down. The good man knocked down and rises up again. In other words, in that tension between the immediate, which is awful, and the ultimate, which is hopeful, we have a tension that is the source of resilience. It's even said of our Lord in Hebrews, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endures the cross then the next words, making light of its disgrace. That's actually the jester word. And that gives the hint that points towards the third fool in the Bible. Not the fool proper, never be that. Not the fool bearer, we may have to be that at times and be faithful and stand with courage. But the fool maker, the person prepared to be seen as a fool, treated as a fool, so that from that position of rejected folly, they can bounce back and, like a clown and a jester, address truth to power. Now, where does that come from? 1 Corinthians 1, not 4, 1. And that's the dynamic of the cross. God, to reach us when we reject and rebel against him, he who is all-powerful comes as a non-entity. He who is rich beyond all splendor, as the hymn puts it, becomes poor. Martin Luther says, you see him defenseless in a crib and derelict on a cross. The subversion of a fool maker to reach our rebel hearts. And there wasn't another way. And Erasmus picks that up. And if you've ever read his little book, Praise of Folly, now sadly it's only something people study in literature departments, but it's a little classic. The central character is Dame Folly a clown, a jester. And she capers on cap and bells and she makes fun of all that's going on from the Pope and the scholars and the whole lot. And the book comes out and within a few months, everyone's enjoying it. 
like reading something comic today. Who dared say this about the corruptions of the church? And the book has a very powerful effect in plowing the ground in which the seeds of Martin Luther's writings sprout so wonderfully. Now, I would support Luther rather than Erasmus in terms of theology, except at this point. But what you see at the end of the book, Dame Folly, as it were, takes off her cap and bells. Who is she? Jesus. The Renaissance world is so crazy, Jesus once again had to become a fool. And when a world is that crazy, the only wise person in the world was the fool. And it took a fool to get them to see it. Now, we don't base any apologetics on Erasmus. But Erasmus went back to the scriptures. And let me go there, which is far more important. You could say a lot, if we had time, about the principles of these things, and then, much more importantly, the examples, because the examples are much more telling. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us once again as we enjoy another exciting show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Stay.